Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, I mean pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. All right. Hello, everybody. Charles Eisenstein here with my new friend, Anna Breitenbach, who has been kind of in my sphere uh, for a long time, many years. We have some very dear friends in common. Um, so I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, and we've talked informally a couple of times and just feel such a good resonance. Um, so Anna is a uh, interspecies communicator. That's what she's known for, not to reduce her to that. Uh, like I don't know her that much as a public figure, but but there's a, a film that you were pretty well known for, right? What was the name of the film, Anna? The documentary was called The Animal Communicator, focusing right. specifically on that. Right. Welcome to the uh, podcast, as it's called. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be communicating with you in, in human, worldly ways. <laughs> right. Even though this is not interspecies, here we are still... Uh-huh, exactly. And still bridging the, the, the seeming divide of distance, which is actually, you know, there's no distance at all between beings, really, but we make it so in our minds. At least then we get excited when we ping and get something back. We, we, feel, a, we feel an aha when our, our minds, our fairly clunky five senses register something. Yeah. So, yeah, it's great. It's great to be here. And likewise, I've been, I've been tracking with you and gosh, just so gloriously saturating myself in what you've written over the years also, the kinds of things that just stay in the heart and that, that resonate, you know, in the web of life. So thank you for bringing all of that forward for human eyes and, and minds to, to remember. Thank you, Anna. Um, sorry to have questions that I've been thinking about. But maybe I'll start with a video I saw of you explaining what's going on behind shark attacks. Because, and it, when I heard it, I was like, yep. Like it just had the ring of truth. Mm -hmm. uh, or either that, or it's something I wanted to believe. It's something that fit in with my general worldview. So as most people do, when something fits what you would like to believe, you say, yep, that must be true. Um, I guess the conventional view is that maybe humans aren't the normal prey of sharks, but they are like these ruthless killers, you know, and if you cross paths with one, then chomp, 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 bad luck for the swimmer. Um, is there more to it than that? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Gosh, well, firstly, part of the more to it, let's just paint the context a little bit, is that hundreds of millions of sharks of various species are killed every year by humans and human-caused reasons. And uh, less than a handful of humans are 
um, end up losing their physical lives after a shark encounter, you know, per annum. Literally more people are killed by toasters going pop. So uh, I, it's, it's so interesting to see how even in our language, we, we, of course, we create our realities through our language, not only when we're intentionally doing positive things like involved with prayer or other invocations, but just an ordinary day speech as well. And so it is very common for us in our modern culture and for the media too, to refer to encounters with sharks as shark attacks. And if there is physical contact, nose or mouth of a shark with human flesh, then it's definitely deemed to be an attack. And that comes with the weight of presumption around the motivations of the shark. Mm -hmm. I'm so grateful to, to be tuned into the, the so-called work that I do and, and the kind of fields that are, that are there for all of us to perceive. But when I really pay a certain kind of attention, I can literally know from the animal's perspective what their motivations are. And for any, for any behavior, there's always a reason that's driving that behavior, right? Of course, there's yeah. a need or a desire that wants to be filled. Yeah, we don't call them shark panics or shark errors, do we? No, <laughs> that would be, great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a great alternative. You can see the headlines now. Shark error injures one human. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, we joke that is often the case. It's, if one really gets into the perspective of, of a different species, number one, that's a good place to start, to imagine what it might be like to be that species in their environment with their priorities with their dominant sense and with their ways of, of going about things. And then beyond even the species perspective, we also need to be able to get into the perspective of the individual, much like humans, different individuals have different personalities, different needs and wants. And so when people ask me, have you communicated with sharks? What do they say? I'm like, well, that's like saying, have you communicated with humans? And what do they say? <laughs> it is individual. Sharks have pretty poor eyesight and their way of navigating their world is with the sense of smell and electromagnetic sensing. So they come to investigate things, you know, following scent trails, following any electromagnetic emission that is uh, different than the, the baseline of what they know to be their natural environment underwater. And a human flapping around, usually with metal scuba tanks on their backs, uh, with the human heartbeat and that electrical signature being put out is definitely worthy of a shark's curiosity. And how they satisfy their curiosity is to come up really close and give something a nudge or a little test bite to see if it might be food. And after that test bite, they usually spit out the morsel of human flesh with a big yuck and 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 swim away. <laughs> and if That's we happen insulting. to bleed out, <laughs> it's insane. well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the fact that we humans happen to bleed out through an artery being being punctured is uh, is nothing in their knowing or their intention at all. We're just these frail bipedals, you know, sort of flapping around out of our natural environment. So it is often um, it's it's unintended unintended consequences because they are being sharks and coming and just simply testing, or being as dominant as they are by nature in the food chain in the sea, they might be trying to push back the surfer or the swimmer if they feel that their territory is encroached upon. There's also another context which plays out a lot these days is literally a shortage of food. Mm -hmm. And so sharks themselves 
in the sort of inshore areas in particular are, are desperate. They're desperate and they're competing amongst themselves for food. And going to investigate anything that might be food can be quite a competitive affair between different sharks. Plus, they pick up on any competitive energy that the uh, human might be having in the water. And predators don't tend to take too well to other predators being on their turf, or in this case, in their surf. So if the spear fisherman is hunting in the water and a shark's around, they're going to notice that vibration of predatory otherness going on and come to investigate or, or, or push back. Surfers are highly competitive too. They might not like to think so, but there's the competing for the wave and for position. And this too is a, is a predatory vibe that we are literally emitting from our brains and, and from our states of being. And any predatory shark is going to come to investigate. Mm -hmm. So if I were swimming in the water and I saw a shark coming up, maybe the best thing to do would be to just relax. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm not sure how calm I'd be able to be if there was a shark swimming around me, but, but as calmly as I could, maybe just swim back to shore. And um, absolutely. That is the yeah. thing to do is, is to, is to relax. And I'm smiling broadly because when we were filming the animal communicator, uh, Craig Foster, the director and, and filmmaker, who's more recently known for my octopus teacher, he had the bright idea that we should prove the peaceful possibilities in an encounter through interspecies communication by doing what you suggest, take me out into the huge uh, so-called false bay off the coast of Cape Town, which is very poor visibility, and uh, dangle me there until a great white shark comes along to investigate. And for then, you know, for me then to get into this very Zen peace-like state and exude that, which, uh, and then see and film the shark turning away. Well, I, <laughs> I know that I would not be able to manage that self-discipline. I had a near drowning when I was three and just being in the water was enough of a challenge at, at that time. And I didn't think it would enter well, particularly when he said, well, if, if that fails, then just give the shark a punch on the nose while it's you know, pulling a vertical to, to come to you. So I respectfully declined. He did suggest that perhaps we film everything else first and make that the last thing to film. <laughs> but right, just in case something goes wrong, at least yeah. we have the footage, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Very, very committed filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yes, we have to genuinely be able to make ourselves peaceful. Now, that can be hard for us to do in the context where we're suddenly prey, right? The shoe is on the other foot, so to speak. Um, and when we pray to, to have the self-discipline to control our state of being you know, is exactly where it's at. The good news is, is that we can preemptively do that. And I've known plenty of surfers and kayakers and divers who at first, with some shyness and secretly as they're kitting up to get into the water, kind of duck behind a rock under the excuse of getting changed to do a quiet little meditation. And as they eventually speak about it with each other now, and some friends of mine have spotted groups of surfers sitting down and getting into a peaceful state and actually sending out a message before they even set toe into the water, sending out a silent greeting, a greeting to just the idea of any sharks that may be out there. Um, and then stating what their human intentions are and that they come in mm -hmm. peace. 
I must just say that the greeting is an important threshold moment too. And, and I know you, you are aware of this and have referred to it in times gone by also, but there is, there is a kind of um, a gateway. There is, there is a mm -hmm. threshold that, that can do with our conscious uh, asking and participation and, and waiting to know that we are invited, if not at least accepted into that environment. And that's everything about who we're being in the environment, what our relationship is and what our attitude is. Yeah, this, this gets to something I really wanted to talk to you about. Um, I, I have been playing with this idea or maybe working with this idea that there is a kind of a covenant between humans and other species and also between other species and other species. But I'm um, thinking now of the human covenant, uh, which is of a different nature with different species. So with say honeybees, there's an agreement that includes all of the co-evolutive aspects of the relationship, you know, that we've evolved in relation to each other. It is a, an, an agreement that is being violated right now by humans in important ways, which is on one level, the reason why we have a colony collapse disorder. The honeybees are like, yeah, we're, if you guys aren't gonna hold up your part of the bargain, then we really can't do it either. Like, or another example, I heard um, a story from, uh, it might have been Costa Rica or Ecuador, uh, but, but where there were some jaguar attacks. And the indigenous people there took that to mean that something in the relationship has been disturbed. So they first, their first question was, what has been disturbed? Like, how has this agreement been broken? Why are the, why are the jaguars so confused that they are attacking human beings. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember the resolution, but, but they s solved the problem when they figured out what was disturbing them and confusing them because they knew that jaguars eating people is not part of the agreement. Mm -hmm. So something mm -hmm. must be wrong. Yeah, I, I'm very grateful that despite the egregious violations of the covenant between humans and bees, humans and corn, humans and wheat, humans and cows, for example, that they're still with us and doing their best to maintain the arrangement, the sacred arrangement that we have. Mm. Yeah, I just I'll, I just want to put that on the table and see what if you want to add something to that idea. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, it's quite astounding how how they remain true to these underlying um, states of, of balance and harmony, which the, the universe on the micro macro level is always moving towards and, and moving, you know, even, even the state of balance or harmony is never going to be a static point. But I've been so moved again and again in my work, which is all with wildlife and wild spaces to see and witness just how compassionate the non-humans are towards us. And there's plenty of examples amongst the bigger animals, like the sharks, like the cows, like elephants in captivity or those used in logging. There's plenty of species who are large enough to very easily cause a lot of damage to their human captors or slave drivers. And they don't. They could just trample us or tusk us or horn us or, or break out. And, and they don't. They have um, not only an inordinate amount of patience, but a huge amount of compassion. And when connecting with animals in the most tragic of circumstance, 
I'm so moved again and again how much compassion they have for the humans involved who are the ones who have lost the plot and how we, we humans have lost our way. And the non-humans have this amazing ability to still continue just radiating their beingness, their availability for, for us to come back to the table, for us to find our way back, they stand firm. And so when there is a disturbance and when it all just gets too much um, and things then go awry, it, the, the first part of what you were saying, I do just want to point out that when there are repercussions or consequences, it's not coming from an ill-meaning place in those animals. It's not vengeful right. or retribution. It's just a very natural consequential symptom of things being so, so out of balance and they just can't hold it. They can't hold the field on their own anymore and things start to go pop as they disintegrate. Yes. I have the feeling that that some animals, part of the, the agreement isn't like, you know, that they're going to be so compassionate and everything like like scorpions, for example. Uh, <laughs> my, my sense is, and I'm going to ask you actually like some more like nitty gritty about interspecies communication, but <clears throat> my sense with scorpions is like the agreement is actually to, to help us be mindful of our environment. Mm. And I mean, they've got when they sting a human being, it's like, it's not that, that, that there's a misunderstanding there. You know, it's like, it's like, yeah, I'm going to sting you twice. In fact, you know, um, and yeah, I mean like, you know, they're scared if you put your foot in the nice shoe that they've taken refuge in, but sometimes they can be pretty aggressive, you know? Mm. So I don't know if you, you don't have to comment on that if you don't want to, but it's just uh, a little added flavor. Oh, I, yeah. I absolutely agree. You know, our ideas of what looks like a good relationship is, is another version of anthropomorphizing. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, these, these different species have their, their place in nature. They have their ways of defending their territory. And a lot of that is very preemptive and pushing back any possible threat. And it's, it's always, it's always for, the, for the, the highest good of all parties concerned. So yes, that example is we get to learn a lot of uh, awareness that doesn't only benefit them, but indeed ourselves too. And it doesn't mean that scorpion species, um, first of all, is all about serving humans and that their soul and soul, S-O-L-E and S-O-U-L purpose on the planet is to dash around bringing humans into awareness because, you know, who died and put us in charge really. But when, when animals are being their most authentic selves, uh, again, the, the, the beautiful consequences of, of that is mm -hmm. going to be the benefit to others, to others in the environment. And, and so, yes, when we look at um, you know, everything, everything these days is so through the anthropocentric lens, even conservation, for sure, and the whole you know, climate change situation, it's all taken from a reductionist point of view and all about... Uh, you know, our, our rights and, and then as we are lords and masters over the others, perhaps we can afford the other species, you know, a little bit of space to continue being in service to us. Right. But just ask any cat, you know, we're also in service to the animals. <laughs> there's, a, there's a symbiosis that's way beyond our, our human understanding. But as long as we think everything has to be about our rights, uh, we're actually causing a lot of a lot of wrong in you know in the context of that polarity. 
Not yeah, and, and <clears throat> paradoxically or tragically, uh, our own well-being suffers as well, mm. even when we're mm. trying to serve our own well-being. Like, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Because we don't actually know what the full purpose of any species is. No. So when we reduce it to the ways that we can measure its service to ourselves, like carbon sequestration. Oh, okay. So now with carbon, you know, with awareness of carbon sequestration, we think that, you know, a peat bog is much more important than a, you know, um, some other <laughs> ecosystem. Because uh, we can do those measurements and we can say, well, the peat bog is sequestering more mm. carbon than something else. But do we really know the ultimate contribution of, say, like the species we try to eradicate, like mosquitoes or scorpions or something like that. In the end, because everything's tied to everything else, everything is related to everything else, like any loss is a loss for everybody. Mm. And um, I, I mentioned to a couple of people that I was going to be speaking to you and what would they ask, you know, and one question was like, does your information come? And this isn't my question. But I just wanted to set up what my question is. Maybe, they, like, does the information come in images? Does it come in like words? Are you channeling it? And I'm like, because I get the sense, like, for one thing, pro, your your approach to interspecies communication is very scientific, almost, very empirical, and and you you take like all the mundane things, like the shark, it has poor vision. You know, like, what is it like to be a shark? You're not excluding these mundane kinds of information and instead going into some esoteric realm like you're you're taking all of your understanding um any bit of information you can get that can bring you into their world and i'm guessing like probably what's happening is that you go into that question what is it like to be you and an understanding congeals from that place um so like, okay, this could be explained very scientifically, right? You're making these conjectures and, and, but then there's also, I know from hearing some things about you, I know that there are definitely examples where you become aware of information that is very hard to explain through normal, you know, scientific reasoning, um, like really specific information about a specific animal. So I guess I'd like to, you can comment on that generally, but I'm also curious, like, was there a moment where you're accessing information that is, um, that there was something extraordinary um, in the basic sense of outside of the ordinary, outside of the human normed ordinary that was going on in your work? Mm, I, I did indeed have quite a few of those experiences that were beyond what could be imagined to be true for a particular species. I'll give an example in a moment, but just to address that, you know, if we're looking at this whole matter of connecting, possibly defined as empathy, um, and that in turn possibly defined as knowing and understanding the other's truth from their perspective, which, which gets us over judgment and human projections and so on, then to set about a, a, an empathic understanding it's not inappropriate to start that with an imagined activity. 
you know, what might it be like to be that rhino? What might it be like to be that goldfish in that bowl in the doctor's waiting room, you know, day in, day out? And it helps a lot to first imagine their physical reality, place yourself as if you were on the inside of the bowl looking out and seeing all the surrounding furniture you know, from that perspective. I imagine what it's like to be wearing that skin of scales, that body covering. So those can be great door openers. Once we begin to imagine what it might be like to be inhabiting the five sensory world of that creature, we are laying a very good foundation for us to be able to perceive uh, their greater experiences and also to be able to perceive that individual you know, non-human person, that individual being's particular experience and thoughts and feelings about things. So the first time I connected with bees, for example, I was uh, in front of the hive that was uh, struggling. They weren't sure if it was going to make it. And I was looking at a few bees who were very slowly crawling around the outside. And so, you know, imagined being in that small body and having wings and six legs. With my eyes closed, suddenly my visual sense of the surroundings that I was sharing with the bees in that place, my visual sense became quite disturbed, almost very mosaic-like. And it took me a moment to realize with my observing human mind that I was essentially experiencing compound vision as insects see. Mm. And that was when I crossed the bridge from a, a thought-invoked, imagined act into just directly experiencing the ways where, the way the bees were seeing. And then I became present to these ultraviolet emissions from flowers and sort of different intensities that was making them choose where to go. But one of my first experiences when, when remembering how to do this through the Assisi International Animal Institute was uh, through the case studies we had to do. And yes, it was quite a scientific approach. They were double-blind case studies. We had to connect with animals that we'd never met before, who lived with people we didn't know. Again, to avoid any auto-suggestion or pre-existing ideas, perhaps messing with things. And we would ask animals, pets, a barrage of standard questions about their food bowl and water bowl and favorite place to sleep and all these things that could be empirically validated and verified afterwards by the person. I remember I was connecting with uh, a rather large dog named Connor, big, big, beautiful, beautiful uh, Rottweiler. And one of the standard questions we were asking in these case studies was, is there anything missing from your life? And you might imagine until then the answers had been, you know, things to do with toys or food or walks that I got behind my closed eyes, I got the brief mental image of a bald eagle flying through the sky and then just a flash of the upper part of a man's arm. And I honestly wanted to, dis to discard that. It was so brief, I didn't understand it. But the protocol of the Institute was that we had to transcribe and write down all perceptions or impressions that we got, and so I did. And when I gave feedback to the, the dog's person over the phone, she burst into tears and eventually was able to speak again and tell me that her young husband in his early 30s had died the year before in a car crash. He had had a tattoo of a bald eagle's head on his bicep. Hmm. And that was one of those woo-woo moments where I thought, that's it, I'm, I'm losing my mind. There's, you know, there's other stuff out there. It was quite scary for me because I've had a very ordinary suburban upbringing and a degree in economics and psychology and maths. And, you know, so 
And the next thing that happened was just ignoring it for a while within myself and the machinations of the mind. But yeah, that was one I couldn't just write off as a, as a lucky guess or having had any suggestion. I had not met dog nor person before. So this is what led me to research it. And um, I did a lot of reading in those days on new physics and quantum physics, which does explain a lot of how this works. And that was just my way. I'm very, very cognitive and analytical. Uh, in retrospect, I wish I hadn't spent quite so much time on the trying to understand it and smoke coming out of my ears because truly experience is the only real teacher. And, and it's just so beautiful to be so directly related to these, to these other beings. Gosh, you know, all those hours I spent ferreted away and nosing books. I could have been just chatting with a butterfly or lying on a blade of grass and, and having a conversation. But that was the path I must have needed to follow for my mind to eventually give up the fight and to accept the wisdom of the heart. Mm. And uh, now I try to keep those two internal aspects talking well with each other. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Shall I answer what that other person's question was too about how it feels to be receiving information? Yeah, whatever, whatever is coming to you to feels like it wants to be um, spoken. When one connects uh, in these ways or just drops into the relational field that's already there, perception and, and information just sort of arises you know, from the field. It, it arises and maybe seeps into our awareness more because we are quiet for once and we are focused. But then this is where the mind, the human mind does come back in because we are automatically unconsciously receiving and empathically knowing so much. You know, our, our instinct isn't something that we have to switch on, nor is it entirely individual. Our, our instinct is contextual. And here I use the words instinct and intuition interchangeably in this context. So it is contextual. It's everything to do with not only the exactly where we are geophysically located, but our existing relationships, emotional bonds, connections, you know, awareness in literally infinite radius distance out from our own bodies, wherever that is situated. And so when we drop in, whatever is reverberating through the field becomes available, available for perceiving and is being done so on the unconscious level. But that's the point. I don't yet know about it with my human awareness because it's unconscious uh, or intuitive. And perhaps the art of me asking a certain question, casting out the fishing line of a question to sort of pull up mm -hmm. some, you know, some piece of data might be the way to go. Or whatever just really is important uh, to that other being, like they're, they're in pain or they've got a need, is what's going to be quite loud on that energetic landscape, speaking from a quantum physics point of view. And so that will automatically come to my attention. But what's happening is that those, those emissions of what is, thoughts, feelings, circumstance, state of dehydration of a tree, injured left wing of a bird. These are just being broadcast into the space, as are our thoughts and feelings, by the way. And um, until those incoming uh, bits of data filter through my mental database of stored words, vocabulary, life experiences, you know, emotions, images, and find a match, uh, yeah, I won't know about it. So I know about it inside my own humanness when my mental database kicks up a little flag. If I'm connecting with a young elephant who's perhaps been found wandering around and, and uh, separated from the herd, 
and I'm feeling their separation anxiety, what might come first to my mind is, is a memory, my own personal memory of first day at school when I was five years old, because I was experiencing separation anxiety then. And that's because the energy is a match. That baby elephant's yeah. energy is a match for what I felt that day. So a few, several people standing in front of the same animal might, um, might translate the incoming messages differently within themselves and, and, and nobody will be wrong. Let's say the truth is, is a diamond, a cut diamond. And different people looking at that diamond can, of course, only be looking at one facet at a time. And whichever facet they're seeing is how they might describe the diamond. And it is a facet of the diamond. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a lens into, it's a lens into the truth. So some, I might get a memory of my first day at school. The next person might, in a very dry, technical way, just see the words separation anxiety in their mind's eye without a booming elephant voice and they're not, not clear audience in the sense of getting, you know, hearing voices in one's head. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody else might just get the raw, the raw emotion. Mm -hmm. There's no right or wrong way that happens automatically within ourselves. I mean, we are, you're in South Africa. Um, I'm in the Eastern North America. We don't have uh, very many animal acquaintances in common. But I'm thinking, you know, the way that you work could work with not just animals, but it could be plants or it could be any being. Mm. And in my mental organization of the world, more and more I'm seeing and actually feeling and experiencing the world as just full of beings, bursting with beings that like everything is a being, not only an animal or a plant, but, you know, a river, um, soil, uh, a swamp, uh, a, mill, a, a hill a cloud, even a being, a story can be a being, a nation is a being, um, jealousy is a being, like everything is a being. So we do have some acquaintances in common when we expand it to that level. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the planet earth itself. When you connect in that way with earth and ask and imagine what is it like to be earth which maybe is even more challenging than with a goldfish because the senses of the earth are millions of times more diverse and, and numerous than the senses of a goldfish um, but when you when you make that attempt and really connect with this planet is there one of those things that is you know, like the elephant with separation anxiety or like the animal in pain, like anything that is just so obvious mm -hmm. that, that, you're, you're, that you could communicate that might be helpful for everybody who loves and cares about the planet. Mm. And when I do connect with the very diverse, uh, large hunk of, of rock that mm -hmm. we're upon, I feel two things. And in fact, in, in any connection, whether it's at something very large scale like that, or just simply an, an ant, you know, on, on the path outside. Um, instantly, it's like having a sort of stereo track, so to speak, because the first thing that I become present to is the intrinsic essence of that being. If it were uh, a mammal, one might say their personality, you know, 
their their sort of predilections, but their sort of baseline signature frequency become become aware of that. That's outside of any ideas. It's just like in any human conversation, beyond the words that are being spoken, you just have a sense of who the other person is in the ways that you could never mm -hmm. describe. So that's one level. And when connecting with the earth as a whole, I, I, I feel an immense sense of groundedness and just bedrock stability and immutability. I feel it in my own body. It's like this body becomes the earth and feeling both that molten core and the incredible solidity. Um, and then the second layer that one connects into is the actual topic of conversation, shall we say, which is more to do with happenings and feelings or experiences of those, of those happenings in the, in the linear experience of elapsed time, such as that's one dimension of experiencing time. And earth is, uh, yes, is feeling and uh, very aware of what I can only really call, I suppose, a scarred skin, the ongoing affliction of her surface being scarred in so many ways. And some of it's through the drying up of water courses and the cracking and the drying. A lot of it is through, all of it is through the ways in which agriculture are being, are being done. And, um, like any fibrous and whole network, when there's enough scarring, eventually the connection points begin to get broken. The synapses become disjointed and, and disconnected and, and shrivel. And so it's really, it's really, really getting edgy. This is not just a few places of scarring or injury that can be isolated or that, that the rest of the surface area of the earth can make up for. So this, the scarring and being cut into, being cut into and being soaked in plastic is literally affecting the flow, not only of the waters, but of the, the, the ley lines, the energy flow in what would otherwise on a normal, healthily functioning earthly surface be a very spontaneous and natural processes, you know, processes of resources being moved around, weather systems, air regeneration, wetlands, the hydrological cycle. And so the ability for those things to move and flow well in the constantly striving for harmony, complexity that life is, that's being disrupted. Yeah. Again, there's no sense of grumpiness to that, but there is a, a feeling of suffering mm -hmm. um, without the judgment that might come with that, without Earth um, having a judgment of the perpetrators of of these afflictions and we know who the perpetrators are <laughs> uh, there's just an isness to it and it's a struggle it's becoming a real struggle it's beyond the irritation value of wanting to sort of flick away the irritating gnats from from your face because they're biting too much we've got some real systemic breakdown uh, things happening yes one of the when i was researching my uh, climate book i wrote a few years ago i really began to appreciate the physiology of the planet. And like, imagine if your heart couldn't communicate with your liver, like your heart communicates in many ways with the liver and with like electromagnetically, hormonally, like through pressure gradients, I mean, all kinds of ways. And imagine if like one by one, those ways get disrupted or imagine like on the planetary level that megafauna are no longer migrating in vast numbers from one part of the continent to another. Like there's a whole system of nutrient 
transport that happens through like birds flying from, you know, feeding grounds to nesting grounds, you know, from like whales taking nutrients from one part of the ocean to another. Like there's all of these flows that, that happen partly through geophysical forces, but also through animal migration. And, and then the ways that animals affect the hydrological flows. I mean, it's just so interwoven, so complicated. When we don't understand earth as a being, as, as like a physiological living being, then we just like don't think about, oh, okay, let's build a border wall. Like how many people, that's like one of the most contentious issues in my country. Is anyone talking about the disruption of wildlife migration patterns? Uh, I mean, there maybe on the fringes there are, but that's like not the one of the main points of the debate. You know, it's not because you know we're we're evil or anything. It's because it's just not on the menu. Of, it's not part of the worldview that determines the debate. It's 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 a forgetting of a way of being and a way of seeing that I think that we're really hungry for. Like when you describe the experience of tuning in to another being, for me, there's like, it, it arouses a longing to return to this community, to like come back home again. And I think that ultimately the, the planetary crisis that we face it requires nothing more and nothing less than our homecoming. And yeah, your, your stories, and I've, I've heard other ones too, you know, that they, um, they make me feel more at home. There's a part of me that is like, yeah, see, I'm not crazy. Um, <laughs> such things are real. We're not alone here. We're not like these alien beings who are the sole possessors of sentience and subjectivity in the world, you know, surveying a dead random melee of fundamental particles that, you know, in this biochemical soup that gives a semblance of life, but all it is really at bottom is generic particles bouncing around according to deterministic forces. And we're the only observers here. We're the only experiencers here. Like that alienation is when, when I tune into the oversoul of humanity, I mean, here's another way to use the practice that, you, that you've dedicated your life to. Like when I tune into the oversoul of humanity, I get loneliness mm. and anguish and hope. There's still hope. There's still, this, um, there's still a, a through line. Um, yeah, do you have any, anything to say when you tune into the, uh, mm. to the world man, you know, the, 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 I asked you about the planet. Now I'm asking you about the world, which is <laughs> yes. the human world and its relations. Like what, what's, uh, what's going on with the world? Ah, gosh. Yes, one doesn't have to bother pointing to specific current crazinesses to, to spot the themes. And we are. We're suffering from a great loneliness of spirit. Great loneliness of spirit. Nothing to do with you know, lockdowns and, and being removed from easy flow with human companionship. But before that, even, we are, we are suffering from a great separation sickness ourselves. And, and perhaps even a separation anxiety that we haven't clocked 
as you know, in, in the correct sort of causal ways. But we are suffering from a great separation sickness. We're dragging the others down with us. They're also at the effects of that. But it's because we are, we are ignoring our home. You know, our, we have a couple of homes, we do, that have nothing to do with the shelter over our heads. You know, our bodies are comprised of the elements and our, our physical animal bodies as humans is a home. And perhaps it's our first home when we are incarnate is our, our bodies, our animal bodies that have their own miraculous processes and that, by the way, have incarnated here. So must surely know intrinsically, inherently, how to relate well, how to balance on the earth, how to move with, how to notice, how to smell and respond and, and feel and dream. And, and then we, we as humans across cultures, um, with the exception of a few nomadic cultures, we, we like to make home in place. And even nomadic people do. They, they just have different scale of cycles, you know, following the seasons and feeling deeply at home within those spaces and not only places. So the problem with modern humans is when we do relate to our earthly surroundings, if we presume that where we choose to make our home is the place we're going to feel the most grounded and the most in physical relationship with our non-human surroundings. The problem is when we choose, we still come at it from a possession point of view. We look at a piece of earth as belonging to us. It's in all our language. It's in all the legal contractual uh, relationships that we have. And we own a piece of land or you know, we rent it and, and it belongs to us. And then we start holding and becoming greedy about and, and wanting to take that sense of possession further. We've lost perhaps the reverse concept is that what if we belong to the land? What if we belong to the land and all of her beings? What if they care for us that deeply? What if they embrace us and hold us where we are? What if the birds, wherever we are, if the birds know us, can sense our still sleeping, resting heads and, and know how their song impacts us. You know, what if we belong to the earth? And, and if we lived that way, we would be much less making concepts about things or going into this whole separation game that science is even, becoming fixated on measurement about only you know, a few aspects at a time and being very unholistic. If we again allowed ourselves to have the feeling of belonging and to surrender into that so deeply, we would be prompted by our surroundings, our very actions, our very choices would be moved by that. We would never dream of buying a toxic detergent to use in our worldly homes because we would care about the spiders further down in the drainage outside or the ants getting poisoned. We would deeply care and we would delight. We would delight in how much that little stalk of moss had grown overnight. We would mm -hmm. delight without needing to make concepts and certainly without any strange view of there being relative value and relative mm -hmm. importance or relative intelligence. So I'm fascinated even by the word belonging because if we break that down, it, you know, in older times, we used to be long time. <laughs> we used to be long time somewhere and in our days of rush 
we're kind of crushing our spirits. We have short attention spans. We demand immediate gratification. We're permanently distracted. Uh, we're not even long with our own pets in the evenings. We might be there as a sort of hollow, <laughs> as a hollow skin bag, but we're on devices or watching something distracted in our minds and the animals just sit there looking at us like, hello, mm -hmm. lights are on, but no one's home. Yeah. You know, I, my first book was called The Ascent of Humanity, and it, it, it's about the subtitle was The Age of Separation, The Age of Reunion, and the mm. convergence of crises that is birthing the transition. Mm. And, and I do see, like, as you were saying, like, that, that our condition is one of separation and a longing to return, like the, 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 resolution, the, the, the transformation of our age is to an age of reunion, where we reunite with all that we have separated from. Mm -hmm. And what you're describing, another way to, that I, I feel the oversoul is um, a kind of like, as a feeling of like an addiction. Because once that separation is underway, it's so painful that you need increasing doses of distraction in order to avoid the pain, you know, in order to, to continue existing. So uh, like there's all these addictions on an individual level, like every little device, you know, every, every distraction prevents you from attending to what's around you, to what's within you, to how you feel. And then humanity collectively also addicted to more and more of what we don't actually need that substitutes for the real need, which is to reunite. Like it's like the child who's not getting attention from the parents and it's just put on devices again and again. And the instant that, I mean, I see this with, around, you know, with kids, with parents, I know, like the instant that the show is over, that the video game is over, the kid is in pain yeah. and needs something else because the the state of inattentiveness for, you know from the parent the state of being cut off is is intolerable actually and i get the feeling of of humanity like in real pain right now like in a in like this you know like late stage addiction where even the next fix only brings you back to barely tolerable you know the first the first fix the first uh, uh, shot of heroin or the first drink makes you feel great. You're, and, and it's actually a reminder of your birthright. But eventually, like, like there's a rightness in the addict's first hit, which is like, yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And eventually, though, because it's actually just a reminder, not the real thing, it's it, it, like all of the, it's interesting, like all of the addictive substances are also medicines. Right. You know, like heroin is actually a medicine. It's not being used for its right purpose, but, but all these things are medicines. And, they, and so they do maybe like open a little, like maybe you never knew what it was like to feel good. And now you know what it's like to feel good. And that's the purpose of it. But then of course, it doesn't create the foundations of feeling good. It doesn't actually create connection. So you need it again and again and again, and eventually it doesn't make you feel great anymore. It just keeps you, it just like brings you back up to baseline. And then as it wears off, you sink into deeper and deeper misery. And then you take another hit and it brings you 
almost back up to baseline. And so I, th I, th I think that humanity is collectively in this state where, where like the addiction is to technology, the addiction is to control, the addiction is to money. And as these things fail, we ramp it up, take a bigger hit, a bigger dose. But even the bigger and bigger dose isn't creating the collective sense of well-being that societies like Western societies had a generation ago. Mm. Like, so it's like this, this late stage addiction where the pain caused by the medicine is greater than the pain alleviated by it. And it's like the sense of, of desperation right now, this collective, and it's not quite reached its fulfillment yet. Like there are still parts of the world where, yeah, this is working, like China, for example, um, you know, the, the, where, which is like maybe America was in the sixties, you know, we're gonna conquer all the problems, you know, technology savior, you know, onward and upward, like we've got this kind of thing. And when you were talking, I was just thinking about what it's like to be out in my garden. And I was like, you know, I mean, I could buy mulch for my vegetables, but I'm like, I might as well just buy vegetables if I'm gonna do it that way. So I'm like scrounging around for leaf detritus on the edges of my small yard uh, and taking the leaves and using that as mulch, you know, and then like, oh, and I'm, I'm scraping these leaves and the, which had been covering the moss that grew last year. And now the moss is going to come back to life. Uh, but I don't want to take all the leaves because the trees are going to need some of that nutrition in the future. And, and like, I just start, cause I care about the moss. Like it's not rational from the, uh, neoliberal subject sense. It's not rational to care about the moss, but I'm sure everyone's experienced the delight in seeing moss spread and, and just being, you know, in it with these other beings. Like it, I'm not getting anything measurable from it, but I'm getting happy because mm -hmm. I'm back in relationship. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you know, my, my deep nature connection and tracking mentor, John Young, um, speaks a lot about this and the, the research of Bradford Keeney back in the day with the, the sand bush people, hunters and gatherers, and what they speak about with these ropes of connection. And uh, we might walk out one day and notice that first little teeny green speck of moss. And in just noticing it, we have gifted that one with our attention and and if we're happy about it or even just vaguely admiring, then we're gifting them with that appreciation also. And that lays down a gossamer thin thread, like a little one strand of a spider's web, a thread of connection. It might be a week or two before we have our eyes fall there again and we see there's been some progress or more growth and, and that's adding another little gossamer thin thread. And so that becomes like a piece of cotton and thicker and thicker. And so these ropes of, of connection are built as spontaneously blessed with our awareness and in fact, the mutual awareness between ourselves and them. There's plenty of ways that science, by the way, has been able to show both through Korean photography, showing the energetic emissions of, of plants, as well as through sound. The Federation of Dumb and Her mm -hmm. has amazing technology that allows the uh, energetic emissions from plants in various states to be digitized and translated into music. And I've done this on little play shops with kids. We've 
popped the senses into the soil of a, of a potted plant standing in a room and have listened to what its baseline energetic emissions are. And then the three or four kids just stand about a meter away and simply regard the plant with appreciation, noticing its beautiful characteristics. And instantly the energetic state of the plant changes. And by the way, as those amplitudes and wavelengths and frequencies get digitized into music, it happens to become a lot more harmonious and melodic. So there is this reciprocity happening the whole time. And that is the natural high. You know, I cannot imagine for, for one second choosing a, a recreational substance to put into my bloodstream um, knowing what the knowing what the natural highs are available that are out there, just a simple, uh, goal-free, wandering moment in nature or a quiet sit allows the beauty of all that is to arise into my awareness, even when I'm not looking for that experience. I remember one morning, having got back from a work trip, being absolutely exhausted, lived on a farm retreat center in the countryside, and I really wanted to sleep in late the next morning. But for some reason, of course, <laughs> that's the problem with having expectations. <laughs> the exact opposite happened. So the next morning, well, just, just, just after dawn, well pre-sunrise, a bird, don't know what kind of species it is, and that doesn't matter because it's not about naming things, but a beautiful winged being must have sat right outside my window just behind the head of the bed on the windowsill and chose that particular place to open their mouth and make their first sound of the day. And I was deeply asleep and brought out of that by this, uh, by this first note of the bird. I was so between wakefulness and sleep that it was one of those experiences of time seeming to slow down and stretch out, like usually happens in a crisis or when your intuition is really, really up, things kind of go in slow motion. And I was aware of a few things. I was aware of my significant grump and the thought arising in me of like, oh no, shut up. <laughs> but thankfully, while that human reaction was going on, uh, because the veils were so thin, I had been so fast asleep, I was automatically in the, in the experience of the bird. Didn't have to open any gateways or intend to connect. I just was, you know, it, it pierced right through. And while my mind was thinking that I wanted this to stop, my body and my being were experiencing that bird emitting its first note of the day. And I cannot describe it really with words at all, but if I have to try, I can only say that it was like having this atom bomb of joy explode in the center of my chest. It was just this unstoppable force of joy, literally of of tectonic proportions just bursting forth that happened to roll over the vocal cords and and result in this kind of song vomit this projection of sound <laughs> that was uh it was instinctual uh, unbelievable it was the most joyful arising of of a beautiful bursting forth of pure energy and gosh you know, I could not have imagined that, but I got to directly experience it as a felt feeling. And it's not dissimilar to the way, uh, by the way, not dissimilar to how whales feel when they breach out of the water. 
Mm-hmm. And scientists and marine biologists try to figure out the reasons why perhaps they want to scrape barnacles off their skin. But not everything is just about utility yeah. or yeah. <laughs> functionality. Imagine just breaching out of sheer exuberance just because you can. Just yeah. the sheer joy of being alive it really is. It is absolutely amazing. Yes. Ah. Yeah. These um, threads that you're talking about, like that goss- that first gossamer thread when you know, you see that little speck of moss. These, as these develop, they're what tell me that I'm here. That's mm-hmm. what the belonging comes from. It comes from like, like being, like existence is not a function of one. You mm-hmm. know, like to be is to relate. And as the relationships get attenuated and cut off by technology and markets, we become less here. Mm-hmm. A lot of young people speak of like derealization, they call it, like this feeling that you're not really here. And when I'm in relationship to something, and, and for me, actually, it does not do to simply, maybe it satisfies a little bit of it, but just to like walk through nature doesn't do it for me. I have to actually have an ongoing relationship. I can't mm-hmm. just like look at some moss and bye-bye, like that's creating that thread and then snapping it again. And every time a thread of connection gets snapped, a little scar tissue forms. And this happens to kids, like like they get, you know, they're in one daycare center for their first year and then another one. And then they go to school and one teacher and the next first grade is a different teacher and second grade and third grade. And like, and then the kids move away, you know, because society is so mobile, like, and eventually like when these ties get broken again and again and again, or never are allowed to form, that's part of the feeling of being alone, part of the alienation. So, so for me, it's like watching that moss day after day and having a relationship that isn't just visual, but it's tactile and it's a relationship of giving and receiving and noticing um, the, this being, like then it becomes part of me and it, and it anchors me here. And then I become aware, like, like you were describing with the bird, pouring forth its song like birds sing way more than they have to to attract a mate and mark off territory oh yes like like these explanations you know of animal behavior that are based on genetic Mm self-interest you know maximizing reproductive self-interest like that that is like such an insulting reduction of life (laughs) absolutely (laughs) and it's part of what makes us feel alone here it's obviously not true like those birds like singing I'm sorry, but they're just like, they, they're like you were saying, they're bursting with mm-hmm. song and flowers. I mean, do they really have to smell that nice? Do they really have to be that beautiful? Like life is exuberant. Yeah, just like even tadpoles wriggling around, like they're in sheer joy, you know? They're just mm-hmm. like, most of life is, like there's way, way more joy in this planet than anything else, I think. There is. There's just the joy of, of being themselves and, and, and expressing, just expressing who they are in the moment um, in response to something or not. Just, just to be alive is worthy of a good wiggle and a good jig, you know, really. And yes, as you're speaking, I'm reminded that so many modern last names or, or surnames, as I would call them, are descriptive. Some are descriptive of a person's uh, trade they used to have, like, you know, the smiths, you know, the blacksmith or the potter, the Harry person, potter, yeah. the potter, totally, exactly. But a lot of descriptive of where the person or the family was situated. I mean, my, my own last name comes from 
Germany originally and refers to a wide stream. And yes, that's how people were known to belong. They were, their coordinates were a set of natural phenomena and earthly gifts, other beings um, in which they were held. And that's how you would know where to find that person. Mm. And you wouldn't find them there in that place, separated from their surroundings. They were with the rhythms of that. They lived, you know, ate and, and slept that way. And so the separation sickness we're, we're struggling from, absolutely, we're covering over, covering over with addiction, like you say, because we, we, we can't actually face that deep, deep well of grief. Never mind the practical implications. If we were to deeply relate again, the implications and the responsibility mm -hmm. we'd be called into for the micro choices we make every day. But first, on the feeling level, just that that grief, that sorrow, that, that ability to really witness what we're putting the others through. It's something we prefer to just avoid and turn away from. Also because we've lost so many grief tending and condoling rituals mm -hmm. in our societies and no more rites of, rites of passage. And so yeah. we're getting more and more frenetic and just covering over these things because we can't face the, the, the grief which would also be a great motivator. I know you have written before so eloquently about becoming an environmentalist, not being a scientific decision because of some awesome presentation and someone made a good case for, for climate change, for example. It's about getting in touch with the love that we're speaking about, the love and the joy and the pain. And, and particularly that combination can be a fantastic motivation to actually have us wake up and dance again with our kin of, of all species. There's a idea in among some environmentalists, which I understand um, that they say the planet is not in trouble. The planet is not threatened. The planet will be fine. It's humans that could go extinct, but in the vast span of planetary existence, earth will be fine. And it kind of goes along with this attempt at humility, which is like, we're not that important. You know, like, let's get over ourselves. But I think there's some, something important missing from that, which is the principle that, for one thing, that Gaia loves us, loves us like a mother loves a child. And you would never say to a mother whose child is seriously ill, well, you'll be fine if the child dies. Mm. Secondly, every species is created for a purpose and all of its capacities, all of its gifts contribute to that purpose. Human beings are no exception. We have gifts that, that I would say are, are unique in some way and we have not maybe used them for, that pur for their true purpose. What is the true purpose? Well, the true purpose of any, like, of any species is to increase the aliveness of all to increase like the level of complexity, life and beauty on earth. So when we awaken to our purpose, then we will do that too. And that that is important. It wasn't random that human beings came onto this earth. And even like, I would go so far as to say that everything that is required for us to have this conversation right now over computers was provided by Gaia easily accessible minerals, fossil fuels. It was like everything was built up to allow civilization and technology to happen. 
So that there, so my sense is that there is something that is not yet fulfilled that is important for us to fulfill. So it's not, oh, we're not that important. It's we are important and let's try to understand why, which is the question, what is a human being for? So yeah, I just like to uh, ask you about that from, from maybe a place of um, you know, tuning into Gaia, tuning into humanity, and maybe we can develop that idea. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that thought because yes, you know, outcomes-based thinking, whether it's in the education of our children or this planetary scientific fact, um, outcomes-based thinking has got nothing at all to do with the present tense. Nothing at all to do with the here and now, which is where life is busy happening. So yes, ultimately our Earth will be turned into a crisp as our sun becomes a supernova and, and all of that. But these, these uh, trajectories have got nothing to do with, with the here and now. And I might even go so far is to say that in my opinion, the here and now kind of shouldn't have anything to do with the future outcome either. And, and it might be a version of insanity to imagine that we can manifest future outcomes you know, per our design or as we imagine they might happen because the fundamental flaw is that we think we are the, the, the orchestra conductor and that we can determine what the result might be when in fact we are just one participant in this amazing orchestra of life. So I'm not a fan of um, these kind of panaceas of what will happen anyway. And I'm also not a fan of being hell bent attached to things having to be a certain way. That doesn't mean that, that uh, the, the hope and the possible futures that are inspiring um, don't have a role in the here and now. They absolutely do because they inform the present. They inform our choices and our actions right now. It's that, it's that vision, it's that calling and that living into a possibility that in a strange way sort of backflows into the present and allows us to make the best possible choices right now. And I use the choices, the word choices quite deliberately. Decisions are different to me. Decisions are based on analysis and evaluation and, you know, sort of measurement-based things. Um, to me, choices includes a whole lot of other things like our intuition, like our context, like our relevance and our relationships with all that are around us, as well as our own willpower and manifestation ability and all the things that we do have here to offer in the context. You know, I'm reminded of actually a beautiful communication from elephant species at that sort of species level that was procured by a fantastic elder named Dina Metzger. And when she tuned in with elephants and asked what it is to be in their purpose, to be them on this planet, there's a beautiful phrase that came forward. They said, this is our grace to be an exact note in the chord that animates creation. And so, yes, we humans do have a role to play. It's not the leading role. <laughs> no roles are the leading starring roles, but we have a role to play that is um, ever-changing and dynamic and it, it for us to be successful at that and fulfilled in that 
for our own benefit and pleasure as well, will require us being able to think on our feet, you know, be in the moment, dance with all that is, uh, become less separate in our thinking, become more participative, um, to be working with and playing with and, and dancing with and informed by all the others as well. So yes, we, we humans are not only a blight or a cancer upon the planet. That's, that's how it looks with the way we go about things with a mixture of our ignorance and our arrogance. But there is um, a place for us, else we wouldn't be here. And we are one of Earth's children. We are. And all of life supports life. Look how much the earthly gifts or so-called resources have supported us already, despite our wayward <laughs> habits <laughs> and our recalcitrance and us being the kind of bullies in the schoolyard, you know. So there's, there's a beautiful joy in these ways of reconnection, in any ways of reconnection. One of the most beautiful joys is, as you're pointing to, I think, is coming back into a direct experience, visceral feeling of being alive and just being here to be exactly who we are and to be guided by that, not from the cerebral centers you know, above the neck, but to be guided by our bodies, by our heart and by our connections and the whisperings that we may perceive that are coming from our environments those whisperings that might be as loud and as obvious as an environmental disaster happening on our doorstep that we feel called to help with, or might be as subtle as that birdsong or that moss that is in that mutual witnessing with us. These things feed our souls. And it's more about us dropping our ideas of our human selves and advancement and relative importance to come back into our our sovereignty, in fact, and our gifts. Yeah. When I said we're important, I didn't mean more important than gnats. Yep. I meant important. Yes. And the question then becomes, well, I said, what is a human being for? But it could also be, um, I like to quote Gigi Coyle, although many people say this, what is mine to do? Mm. And that is, it is, as you're saying, a very present question. It always means what is mine to do right now. Yet, also, the cerebral parts above the neck that you invoked, and along with them, the capacity to plan, to bind time. That was, I believe it was Alfred Korzybski named, he named as like the fundamental distinguishing, like humans are time binding creatures. Mm -hmm. Like all of these capacities, um, I extend the question to that too. What are they for? If not to be the conductor, I, mm -hmm. I concur with that, but it is to play our instrument beautifully and to participate in the orchestration, the, the orchestrating intelligence of this world and of this cosmos. Like even after the planet burns to a crisp when the sun goes nova, everything that has happened here feeds into a cosmic evolution that is just, you know, on a time scale, an unimaginable time scale. But, you know, to bring it back, back down to earth. And I think you were saying a bit of this, like stories of the future, stories of, of or myths, I would even call them, of who we are, where we're going. They feed into the present, even when maybe on some level we know that they're not permanent. 
sort of like that the story of what is a human being for right now, it, I mean, in the previous era, the story was to dominate and conquer nature, to rise above nature. That was an exciting story for a lot of people. You know, space, you know, the, the deep ocean, you know, the final frontier, like all that stuff. It uh, inspired children to become engineers and astronauts and gave meaning to life. And it, it uh, no longer really does. It's a story that has, the, the, whose wellspring has dried up and it is um, a stagnant pool now that is getting covered over with algae and is not able to satisfy our, our thirst for meaning and purpose anymore. And, and new springs are rising. Um, mm. And I think that humans are story-making animals. We are mythological beings. And that our healing is not an abdication of that capacity. And we're just going to live from, and I know you're not saying this, but I'm just thinking out loud here, you know, and we're just going to live from the, the neck down from here on. Um, it's not an abdication of those powers, but it's a fulfillment of them. And so for me, the question, it's not about, okay, let's stop, you know, thinking about the future, but it is tuning into and inhabiting and, and being inhabited by the next myth, the next story of the future that is a wellspring of purpose and participation. Like it helps us know what our participation is and, and what note to play. And for me, that story is, we are here to heal the damage that has been done, um, to serve life and beauty here and to come back into relationship with all the things that we've objectified and ignored. And, and like for me, like, um, there's like a little element, at least when I say it, and maybe maybe not when you say it, but when I say it, there's this element of oh, of pain, of self-rejection when I speak of the arrogance and ignorance, of, of our arrogance and ignorance, you know? Does Gaia see us as arrogant and ignorant? Um, does, does, do I see my, you know, when I have a teenage son who's acting arrogant and ignorant, do I have any shred of contempt for him? No, because I, I know that this is like part of his beautiful process of coming into himself and that there is an initiation ahead of him that will obliterate the arrogance and ignorance. And I'm like, yeah, you inhabit this now, you know, like fill it out because I know it's coming for you. And I would like to, um, just in case anyone is listening, like who's listening has that contempt triggered by humanity's arrogance and ignorance. Cause I hear that a lot, that note of contempt in um, environmental movements, you know, environmental discourse. Um, I'm like, Gaia doesn't feel that, you know? Gaia loves us. Can we love ourselves? Can we, can we say, yeah, we did that and we're done. We're done with being the conqueror. We're done with the, the folly, the, the hubris, not because it's bad, but because that's not who we are anymore. Like it's not true. We recognize it's not true. It's not based on truth. 
<laughs> I love that that metaphor you use because yes, like a parent would regard a teenager's arrogance and ignorance. Um, absolutely, without judging it, it it is like that with with Gaia and the phrase we would use in English in that sort of kindly parent view might be, oh, well, just go ahead, knock yourselves out, you know, <laughs> knowing it'll, it only is a phase. And yeah, you know, we humans are pretty much knocking ourselves out, at least large numbers of ourselves, be, as, as a natural consequence of, of having those attitudes. But there is no judgment from Gaia or any of her species, which probably explains what we were speaking about, this compassion that the non-humans have for us. They can sense how we're lost and there's a, a kindly patience um, with it and and them remaining an invitation for us to uh, come again into the circle of life to rejoin the circle to participate mm -hmm. and and what's possible with with full participation is the most amazing possibility around around co-creation things that we could never imagine even with our technology even mm -hmm. with our space programs even with the most forethinking philosophers and metaphysical scientists, there are things way beyond the current confines of our imagination that are possible if we really co-create with the others. And I'm talking about a co-creation that isn't still laced with the subtle superiority complex, like, oh, let's co-create with the wind and, and harness wind power and, and be all sustainable about it. Right. It's not harnessing uh, things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that. You know, or e even biomimicry, as wonderful as it is, it at least bobs ahead in the direction of acknowledging the fantastic design and architecture inherent in natural systems. But biomimicry is still sort of, you know, notebook and pen following in the trail as a miracle of life, taking notes and seeking to copy for, for usually mm -hmm. human-only benefit. What if we just left all the notebooks and the and the pens at home and the, the keyboards and in our own small ways, right where we are, began participating again. Gosh, the co-creations that would be possible that, that would fire in our minds above the neck would be informed by the collective and by our deep connections. And wow, that's, that's a game I want to be in and enjoying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you might take the, the clipboard and the notebook, you know, and go out there and be like, what process could happen that requires our participation and what is our role in that process? And, and so, yeah, it's not biomimicry, it's bioparticipation. So like perhaps like, you know, after a long observation, you see how soil heals over time. And in that circle of regeneration, you're like, wow, like we could step into this spot in the circle and um, that healing could happen much faster or more extensively. Create. I was just in a, on a call with this um, amazing Brazilian guy, Leontino. He's a farmer who, uh, you know, basically inherited his family's sugarcane plantations. And um, now, on forty thousand hectares, he grows a third of the world's organic sugar. And yeah. and the the biodiversity of his sugarcane fields is higher than the surrounding forest because. He's just like, you know, just doing all these things that, that he's developed over 30 or 40 years to serve life. You know, yeah, like if you just abandon all the fields and left things to themselves, they would eventually recover. But something is possible with human participation and not just recovery and healing. That's the next phase. But how could the earth come even more alive 
for me, the, it's that will be the, the question. Uh, and it's not just like biological life either. I'm, I'm thinking of like these Taoist temples where they were from start to finish conceived of as a new growth on the landscape. Like they were a gift to the land. Like every, imagine if every human creation was conceived in the spirit of a gift to the planet. And, and it gets into an esoteric realm, you know, like, like it's not that necessarily that lots and lots of species are going to live inside your temple, but it is doing something to that place. And maybe there's more life outside of it because of the exact spot that you put this pyramidal structure, you know, or whatever. I mean, Taoist temples weren't pyramidal, but, but you know what I mean? There's, oh, what was this? Oh, biogeometry. Like there's this whole uh, movement uh, of, what was it? What's the guy's name? The founder. Anyway, like he goes and like puts like these geometries near cell phone towers and power plants and stuff to transmute the, the, you know, some measurable and some non-measurable frequencies that the discordant frequencies that they generate. Uh, I mean, there's like, there's just so much beyond our purview right now. And I think that for me, the, the story of maybe not the next 500 years, like that's pretty clear about healing the discernible damage, but the story of, of the 5,000 years or the 50,000 years after that has to do with, boy, I'm really going off on a on a tangent here, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be quiet and uh, see if there's anything stirring in you to share around what I said or anything, not around what I said. <laughs> well, I absolutely agree and can feel those, those possibilities of that way of being related. There, there's a reverence inherent in that, you know, the Taoist temple, the offering to the land, the, a lot of a lot of rituals, a lot of, you know, saying grace before a meal, a lot of rituals are all orientated around appreciation. And, and again, the reciprocity that that springs forth from that is amazing. And not and reciprocity is not transactional. It's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There's no sacred accounting going on. It's not like the mosses and the birds and the trees are waiting to see how much we give and then mm -hmm. figuring out how much, to, how much to give back. And you know, as we, as humans in our sort of earth suits are moving around, right now we can be that offering to whichever place we're at in any moment. Because it is about the, the energy of things. You know, energy is just energy. And matter is simply more tightly squished together density so that it goes through the illusion of being solid. It's just basically more dense energy. Mm -hmm. But there's no difference in, in possibility or actuality of uh, condensed energy seems more solid versus more dispersed. That might be a thought or a feeling. And so as we cross any threshold, for example, like out of our doors in the morning, our very awareness on anything that isn't ourselves <laughs> is, is a gift. Our awareness is mm -hmm. a gift to, to the other. That is the gift, that is our offering, the light of our awareness. Not only does it uh, create relating as a verb, not maybe our ideas of relationship as a noun, but relating is happening. But our awareness, even just baseline awareness before appreciation and gratitude, all of those things, those are our gifts. Those are our offerings on a, on a daily basis. There is no scale or relative importance or magnitude 
when it comes to uh, gifting the earth with ourselves, with who we are. And is there just like totally changing course here? Is there is there like any species that maybe on a species level you've been most intensively working with or communicating with recently that you feel has like some timely urgent message or some kind of information that you would like people to know about? Hmm. Coronavirus. <laughs> have you been communicating with the coronavirus? Oh yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> as I as I have in years gone by with any um, proliferation of viruses or parasites living in in this body, you know, as happens. I mean, we are just walking petri dishes ourselves, as we should be. Yes. Um, but when there's a little too much bilirubin or malaria kind of you know floating around, then it's 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 time for a good conversation. And in those cases in my past, it's been very interesting to hear from those, shall we say, microorganisms, um, what they're up to, how things are out of balance and how they're able to very easily naturally take advantage of that situation. And so we have to come to some sort of agreement and that means me having to make some shifts too. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of, you know, architecture of how these things work. Again, you know, we are in relationship with everything. We just don't get to come in and obliterate and wipe out another species because we don't like them. And currently there seems to be a worldview of huge amounts of prejudice against the various coronavirus uh, strains, you know, years gone by and the most recent experience in the last couple of years. And um, yeah, what can I say? There's an intelligence there, an intelligence that will always outrun our feeble attempts to squish and squash and kill and devise things to, you know, counteract it's the intelligence of nature to adapt. And mm -hmm. so microorganisms will adapt, will mutate. That's just the way things go. Mm -hmm. So there's also the, the greater context of, of balance and things move and things happen in waves and there's constant readjustment and feedback loops that are informing the greater system. So, you know, there is no judgment on the part of a microorganism towards humans. This is not some uprising from nature to try to kill humans off. And by the way, that's not even what's happening. You know, it's not like a lot of a lot of people are really succumbing to this. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Um, but it is a very interesting spotlight. The whole phenomenon is a very interesting spotlight shone on on how we have been that have led to these you know, way out of balance, perhaps species jumping things happening. It's because of our relationship with, with wildlife and, and the conditions under which we keep them, interact with them, suppress their immune systems. Um, but mostly it's an opportunity for us to be reflected to, you know, how we are, how we are responding, what our prejudices are, how we assume that humans should prevail above all else and how we're willing to poison ourselves to achieve some idea of longevity. Yeah. So as far as coronavirus goes, and I hope this won't get us censored, but about a year ago, I, I became, at least a year ago, pretty early on, I, I became aware of renegade scientists claiming that this was the result of basically bioweapons research, uh, where they're inserting, you know, new sequences into bat coronaviruses. And I mean, there's like all kinds of papers about this, you know, and now, and if you said anything like of that nature, you would get censored. And, and ridiculed and, and destroyed. But now, finally, it's becoming clear 
I would say that that is indeed what happened. Not not necessarily that it was deliberately loose on the population, but uh, you know, it's kind of like the uh, sorcerer's apprentice. Um, you you mess around with this stuff, and eventually it you lose control of it, and you learn some kind of lesson, hopefully. So one of the most fascinating things about this that I have not heard people talk about is what a pathetic failure it is as a bioweapon. Great you point. Know, <laughs> like, they, like they were doing this research to engineer something to be very, very deadly. And then it escaped and it actually isn't that deadly. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's something going on here um, and it's related to what you were saying. You've said it a couple times in different ways that nature isn't out to seek revenge, that we're not going to, and I, I, the way I put it is we're not going to be saved from ourselves and delivered from having to make a choice by planet becoming unlivable for us. Mm -hmm. like we could continue developing technology and destroy the entire planet and have artificial food and bubble cities and so forth. Like that's the direction we're moving in. Nature is not going to say, no, you can't do that. Nature is going to say, do you want to do that? Here's like, this is what the Kogi say. If you knew she could feel, you would stop. It's only because you, you don't know that she can feel. You're not connected with the pain that you keep doing this. And that is what will change our direction if we choose it. It's not an inevitability. It is a choice. So it's almost like there's some part of like some deep unconscious recess of the, the established scientific world that kind of wants there to be a pandemic, like a deadly one, because then our finely honed technologies of control can finally be deployed. It's like, you know, you like those, the people who build the nuclear bombs and, and bombers and, and missiles and stuff like there's part of them that wants to use it, you know, like to validate it. Like we have all, we have this whole arsenal of control-based technologies and there's part of us that wants to finally deploy them. And so here comes what's actually a very marginally deadly pandemic. I mean, I don't want to like say, oh, it's nothing, but you know, it's not half the population dying or a quarter or a 10th or even 1%. So, but we still jump on the opportunity. Uh, it's like trying to force a kind of um, this, this like savior relationship, this, this validation of domination and it isn't working. Like we are not actually in that phase of our teenagehood anymore. And especially now as it's becoming apparent that the response to COVID was worse than the, than the disease. Um, not only like the, you know, millions of children starving from lockdowns and things like that. Um, I mean, you're in South Africa, you probably, that's probably more visible for you than it is here in the US. Um, across sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia. I mean, like the amount of suffering from the lockdowns, it's just, but, but also the, um, and this isn't as apparent yet, but the, like the health consequences of isolation, the mental health consequences, and then possible, um, like a growing awareness now of the side effects of substances that shall not be named. Yes. <laughs> um, so that the uh, censorship bots do not find this. But the substances that shall not be named, you know, causing like side effects that are getting hard to, to suppress now, you know, as they're happening to people. So, so like this is in a way part of the initiation that 
I invoked earlier. And so, but it's interesting here because here is an organism or a virus at least, a being that exists through a manipulation. And I'm, I'm curious, like in a way like corn, cattle, honeybees, they've co-evolved with us too. Like vegetables, you know, there's been a relationship that one might call breeding, but is a coevolution. And this, these genetically modified beings are, it's like like a new extreme of. What are you thinking, <laughs> Anna? Well, yes, coronaviruses have been around for a long time in animal populations, and there's perhaps a, a more harmonious relationship between coronaviruses and their non-human hosts. <laughs> And yeah, um, sometime in 20, gosh, 19 now, when I first connected with so-called COVID-19, um, it, it definitely felt that it, it had been modified. So there's the base coronavirus, which, you know, uh, doesn't do well for human bodies until our human bodies would naturally learn to adapt and develop natural immunity. But at the outset, it's just a bit of a shock as we would learn to adapt once it it jumps the species barrier but yes it has then been modified as well which by the way um, not only has been unsuccessful on the numbers level but it also it uh, it changes of course the intrinsic nature or personality of of that virus becomes becomes a hybrid and less able to operate under its own normal guiding principles even biologically speaking because those have been altered suppressed or, or interrupted and so within this new version of this virus and, and new versions, there's, there's kind of mixed signals, some signals, pathways have been cut off. There's this kind of errant, you know, errant aspect that's, that, is, that is not uh, self-determined you know, any longer or not part of the way things would naturally evolve. So nonetheless, it's, it, it is as it is. And, and we... You know, we, we so collectively speaking as humans, we so quickly fall into us versus them, you know, and, and the threat based thinking and us being victims. And then along come the technologies of various other things that shall not be named that don't seem to be the saviors. And it's, it's all us just playing in the sandpit, really, you know. Um, any, any ill, whether personal and unique to one individual or on a grander scale, it all will show something it will reveal something that might need addressing or redressing or working with or participating with and uh, you know a few years back I was really really ill with viral and, and bronchial stuff that had me be very unwell for more than six months with some some pretty serious consequences in terms of a human body but I wasn't slowing down I wasn't taking all the kinder signs or the advice from mentors or all the, you know, short-term hits on my energy. I wasn't slowing down. I was still traveling a lot and just doing, 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 overdoing. And this system was not going to be able to maintain that. And so something just basically had to make that stop. And it's, you know, been my greatest teacher. I wouldn't have chosen it but it's been the greatest teacher when what I actually needed for my own sustainability and my own growth, by the way, my own growth and hopefully coming a little, a little bit, a little bit wiser and a little bit gentler. Um, it needed that teacher that I wouldn't have chosen. 
So everything is an opportunity. Um, you know, crisis is an opportunity as defined in the Chinese language, I believe. Uh, we, we need to watch how we fall into an us versus them or us versus the virus or the illness and uh, come back into a place of relationship with everything. Again, without going into magical thinking, but just really, really both for you know, my individual human body and mind and, and having compassion for just where I am at this phase. In 10 years time, I, may, I might make much better choices, but mm -hmm. I'm not there yet. I'm where I am now. And to have that self-forgiveness and that self-compassion inherent in just sort of doing the best that I can, um, that's how I wish to dance with life. And that's for me is quality of life, which by the way, has nothing to do with quantity of life or how mm -hmm. long my lifespan is. And that's something that all the non-humans have totally got. They've just got it. Yeah. They do not see, you know, shorter or longer lifespan as having anything to do with anything. To them, physical death is just a transition in the state of being. And they're not going to be sacri sacrificing the quality of the life that's possible now for extending the linear time uh, incarnation. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think the primary insanity of our time is the worship at the altar of safety, the... Uh, delusion that we can, uh, that we won't die, you know, <laughs> exactly that the purpose of life is to survive it. <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's crazy, you know, not to take risks just for the sake of risks, but it's really mm. to put living fully above surviving indefinitely. Mm. I think if we really got that, we would have much less patience for lockdowns and perpetual distancing and, but things are changing now. And I think that the uh, impatience with it is, is really growing. It's like a, it's like a outburst of life now that's been suppressed that is unstoppable. And I would like to see how far the celebration of life can go. I absolutely agree with you, you know, and, and the impatience with it isn't only mental or psychological as, as is appropriate anyway. It's again, our instinctual nature, our animal bodies are just sensing this lack of, of, of touch, of, of reciprocity mm -hmm. with other humans, of community, of hugging, of sharing circles, of, of all that is possible when space is shared. And so I think perhaps unbeknownst to most of us, we've become much more instinctual in this time of lack because often it's only that pain of missing something, even if we don't know it mentally, it's that pain of missing something that will, mm -hmm. that will draw us into seeking remediation and, and reaching out again. A few years ago in an ayahuasca ceremony, I uh, experienced being an animal in a cage. Uh, there was certain circumstances in the ceremony that were very confining, you know? And so I, I, I responded by going into like this, this like, deep identification with caged animals. And I totally understood why they like chew on their limbs, you know, why they like, like just to create a feeling of aliveness. Mm. Um, it's just so like the life force has to do something. And if it has no other expression because it's so caged in, then of course it turns on itself. It kind of explains like the, meteoric rise in um, addiction and suicide and self-harm 
uh, and and domestic abuse that's happened under lockdowns. It's it's it, ultimately it's just a repressed life bursting out in whatever way is available. Mm, and it ties into what you said um, a little while ago also about unless we are witnessed and related to we we don't know that we're here. Mm -hmm. you know, we're not actually here until we yeah. are mirrored and related to we we we're, we're not. We're not here. Yeah. Mm. And you know, when we humans are here, wherever the here is, <sighs> all the other non-humans know that too, whether or not they can move away from us if they choose to. You know, plants can't uproot and run away from us if we're being obtuse mm -hmm. or loud or insensitive in an environment. But all know that we're there. They know our, our emissions. They, they know our signature frequency. They absolutely read our state of being better mm -hmm. than we might even know of ourselves. Uh, yeah, being, being here or being somewhere isn't just about our idea of putting ourselves in an environment and then with our five senses noticing that. It mm -hmm. is relational. It's yeah. actually relational. There is swapping of information and frequencies happening the whole time. And in so doing, we are, of course, affecting that environment. We're leaving an energetic imprint that lasts like an echo after we've gone as well. Mm -hmm. Everything is touched and moved without us having to physically touch. Everything is touched and moved and altered and had their experience added to by our presence, even fleetingly anywhere. Yeah, just even existing on Earth and living a life is part of a planetary and cosmic evolution. I've had I've received that message sometimes too when I became like so addicted to doing all the time and getting burnt out, you know, and nothing I could do is enough because the problems were so big. And in those moments, you know, when I was in pretty severe breakdown, um, fatigue and, and it had moments of like absolute clarity that like Gaia reaching out to me and saying, I just want you to be here. You have no idea how important your existence is. And then my mind's like, oh, so you're saying I'm, I don't have to do anything. I can just be here and take up space. Yes, that's right. You don't have to do anything. And I know that who you are and who you're, who you, that in your full being, you do things, but you don't have to earn your right to exist. None of the animals and plants think that they have to earn their right to exist. They're not making excuses for themselves. They're not justifying their existence by how much they're contributing. Like that is secondary. First is I am here. Oh, I love the gentleness and, and self-compassion there is in that, exactly. And it also helps us really feel and know and trust that it's not about scale of what we're doing. There's no mm -hmm. one more or less important activity. There's, there's a phrase in a song from a long time ago, and it's kind of used, you know, we'll write, I suppose, in doobie, 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 do, but mm -hmm. that's got things entirely the wrong way around. <laughs> the do comes first. 
It should be the other way. Being, being is primary. Being is our gift. Being is our resonance. Being is our participation. And if we're really relaxing and just sublimating into being, then doings will arise. We will be moved. We will be moved mm -hmm. to be doing something, moved by whatever forces might conspire to have us do something that is appropriate to the collective. Yeah, it'll, be, it'll come from the same place as the bird song comes from. Mm. Pours forth irrepressibly. Yes. Yeah. Maybe we should bring our conversation to a close for now. Is there anything you want to say about the work you're doing now or um, any anything you want to offer publicly or any message you want to make sure to uh, imprint on people listening? Thank you. Well, I would love people to just know and trust how easy this is. This isn't some you know, intuitive connection. It's not a function of the mind. It is just a function of being. It's happening anyway. And wherever we are, indoors or outdoors, in a moment of our awareness going to something, we are related. And we may even find out some things by simply wishing to from a place in our hearts that has genuine curiosity and interest in, in the so-called other. So I encourage people to, to be with this to uh, to connect in these ways, not not create another idea about it that that will create separation from just knowing the delight of being deeply connected and participating. And then, in terms of little helpful tips and so on, I, I do have a YouTube channel that can be found under anim Animal Spirit, all one word, Animal Spirit, with a few excerpts on how to live more kindly, which is. Mm -hmm sort of tagline I'm on about how we can live more kindly it does include being kind to ourselves also but living more kindly with the little garden critters around us or our, our feathered friends yeah and later yeah. this year I'll be launching a video course along with a colleague uh, Brad Laughlin we're titling it for the love of animals because that's so often what inspires us humans to connect Mm -hmm. It's the animals, it's the non-humans who, who show us a little taste of their presence and authenticity and show us a whole lot about ourselves as well. So for the love of animals is what often draws us into these ways of connecting. And that course will be a video course delivered over six modules, exploring how we can unpack within ourselves any obstacles and barriers to the pure and simple joy of connection. And that will be available from September People can uh, sign up to the mailing list to be told more about it at animalspirit.org. Yeah, we'll put the links in the uh, description so people can find those. Um, and I'll just highlight one thing you just said. It's not like you have some ability that other people don't have. It's that for the modern person who has been indoctrinated otherwise, animal or interspecies communication is more available when you know that it's possible. So right. what I get from uh, talking to you and watching your vi videos and stuff is that it anchors the field of possibility. It basically says, yeah, you can do this. She's human, she does it, I'm human, therefore I can do it. And it's one of those things that like, you kind of have to know that you can do it in order to do it. Mm -hmm. Once you know that it's possible, then you start doing it. Um, it's not that you have to be able to do it in order to know that it's possible. It's the other way around. So Absolutely. You don't have to see it to believe it. You have to believe it to experience it, to see it, right. to have it happen in your awareness. Yes. Right. Right. So, so I, 
thank you for creating the outpost of that uh, to so that we can go and stand there and be like, oh yeah, yeah, it works. Because it really does. Uh, and the amount of information and the kind of information that you get that way is so needed in our time. I, I look at the state of the planet and the state of humanity. I'm like, it's going to take a miracle. So let's be serious about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It absolutely is. And thank gosh, thank you, Charles, too, for being one of those humans at, at the outpost also just inviting others to come and look at the fabulous view from out here on the on the edges mm-hmm. on the margins on the periphery it's uh, endless horizons of possibility and the beauty of it all so thank mm-hmm. you thank you for your voice yeah. in in singing people into this possibility also thank you this has been a new and ancient story with your host charles eisenstein I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.